We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Hey, what's up? I just wrapped up a podcast with Shruti Lanka of public.com. I'm a big fan of this company because they rely on creators and their audiences to help create, you know, compelling events to trade uh, within your portfolio, which I think is neat. And when we spoke about what makes a good CFO versus a great CFO, one of the things that Shruti was immediate to call out is a CFO's understanding of product. And so a lot of CFOs will stay in their CFO box. I'm the finance guy. I'm the back office guy. But she explained that even if you're not verbally saying it in the meeting, when the CEO gets a question from an investor or a potential customer, you should be able to answer pretty much anything, even if you're just going through mental reps in your head, like you're the backup quarterback. And she understood the product from soup to nuts. I thought it was incredible how much she knew about the product's design, the product's conversion rates, what customers are asking for. Like she was super in tune to the product. So enjoy this combo with me and Shruti. But before we get into that, I'm going to go off the books for a second. And exciting. This is our first ever mailbag segment. I'm like imagining like there's noises behind me going on like mailbag, mailbag, mailbag. We'll see if Producer Nancy puts that in or makes me sound like a total fool just saying that out loud with nothing. Um, first question we've got for the mailbag. So they said, hi, Carl. So somehow they knew my government name. I don't know who told them that, but our, it's an insider info here. Um, Thank you for sending over part four of the planning guide. I have a question where I would like to get your view on. When it comes to COGS, you outline the following. That's cost of goods sold. Generally, 33% people, so that's customer support, your break fix, and your customer success, adoption upsell, um, if those people do not have a quota. Uh, 33% tools or data, so that could be you know support tools like Ask Nicely, Zendesk, Churn Zero, and then 30% hosting or infrastructure, so that's the likes of AWS, GCP, Snowflake. The question is, what's your view on engineers who maintain infrastructure? Ooh. From an operational perspective, I want to know so that I don't kid myself when scaling the company. However, it can obviously put a significant pressure on your gross margin. My engineers work on the following stuff on the infra. Support specific customer requests, maintain the code, fix bugs, etc. Do security updates. Would you allocate these into gross margin? And in your experience, how does the market allocate it? This is a spicy one for all you gross margin fans out there. If I was being 100% academically honest with you, I would break them out and put them in COGS too. But like the reader pointed out, it's going to totally put undue pressure on your gross margin. And in my first FP&A role ever, I came to like the f- same conclusion this reader did. And I thought I was doing us a favor by putting it in the right spot. I, I remember specifically, I put seven engineers into COGS And then my CFO was like, whoa, 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 put that back, put that back. And I had to put it back in OpEx. And I was like, well, isn't that the right spot? Because like we, this is where we're maintaining our product. It's like our ongoing cost to serve and make customers successful. And the way my CFO explained it to me was like, no investor would ever force us to actually put it there. Like we can get away with putting in R&D. So maybe it's not the most honest thing to do that, but you know, it's, it's something that you can get away with, I'll say. Um, I think though, like it comes up more often once you cross that hundred million in revenue line of demarcation, you could call it. And there are more clear reporting hierarchies where it's easier to split out people who just work on infra all day. It takes a while for you to get to the point where you have someone who's like only job is to manage your GCP spend. But when you do get to that point, it's a more obvious you know, trade off of where you should put them. And it's easier actually for the accountants to put it there so the FP&A people can talk about it in the right spot. 
And if I'm looking at the market, because it's always important to benchmark what the rest of the market is, the market does not usually allocate it to COGS. They're always trying to slip one by the financial analyst goalie here. Um, what, and, and I actually see them do the opposite. And what the market will often do is they'll take their AWS or GCP spend and they'll actually claim that 10% of it is for um, development. They'll say, hey, that's not the production to serve our customers. That's actually for development and new products. So I'm actually going to take that out of hosting or out of my gross margin and put that down in R&D to further reduce the burden on gross margin. So that was uh, our first ever mailbag question. I hope you enjoyed going into the deep, dark arts of gross margin. And I'm here with Shruti Lanka, the CFO of public.com. Thanks so much for carving out time for us, Shruti. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. So the first topic I wanted to dive into is the partnership between a CFO and a CEO. And I know that this is probably something that you've given a lot of thought to in your in your current role. So how do you think about how a CFO and CEO should interact on a daily basis and kind of what, what's the cornerstone of that partnership? Yeah, it is something I think about a lot. And I think it is something that devolves as the company changes, as it goes through various stages, right? But really in startups where more than all of that, the thing that matters is running the business effectively and knowing you're making the right decisions for the future. I think the number one thing is making sure that you're on the same page always about the key numbers and metrics that matter to the business. And this seems like, oh, that's obvious, right? But uh, I think you know, CJ, that there are honestly so many different ways to go at any given point, right? Do you care most about the users? Do you care about revenues? Do you care about top of the funnel, bottom of the funnel? How do you calculate payback, you know, is runway more important? Is revenue more important? And honestly, those answers really change based on where you are in the company's life cycle, the macro cycle, and a number of those things. And so I think there's, there's a few simple hacks that I've used to make sure we're on the same page, which is, you know, once a week, we're looking at the exact same numbers. My team sends out a report about exactly you know, what the business is doing, not just from a cash perspective, right? Here's our cash balances, here's runway, here's the whole balance sheet view, but also like revenue, users, paybacks, the, the whole thing. So once a week, at least we're looking at all of the same set of numbers. And then once a month, we come together to talk about strategic things that are beyond the day-to-day that may be falling through the cracks. A lot to dig into there. And I kind of want to separate this into two parts. So kind of the communication and responsibilities with your investors, because I know that's a tricky thing to manage as a CFO with the CEO. And then also the metrics part, which which yeah. we can dive into in a second. And I'm, sure. I'm, a, I'm a huge metrics dork, so I'm yeah. excited for that. So Love data, it, throw it my way. <laughs> yeah, we got a lot of data questions for you. So how, how should a CFO and a CEO split up the communication with the board to make sure you're on the same page? How do you manage kind of that? I mean, the answer is there's always a background conversation. You must always be on the same page with your CEO, right? There should be no surprises really in that relationship. I mean, you're managing the board together, but really on, you know, major like company priorities, like what are we building roadmap product people? I like to think that the board really looks to the CEO for those answers, typically the finance domain. I find that usually the board defers to and and the, and the team as well defers to the CFO. And I think it's a pretty clean you know, division of responsibilities actually from a board management perspective between right. CFO and CEO. But the answer always is, you know, have that pre-conversation, whether it's the board meeting or a simple email. That makes a lot of sense. And then in terms of the metrics that you review with your CEO on an ongoing basis, how often do you come up with that list of metrics? That's an excellent question. Uh, especially in a business like ours where things do change quite a bit, right? Honestly, even a year is a really long time. This is a a second-by-second business. I think it depends on what the metric is. Things that are leading indicators for the business should really be 
checking every day. And so we talk about those honestly all the time. There is no set time to say, is this the right thing we uh, were looking at? Because we're discussing these things all the time. It almost evolves naturally. But for lagging indicators, I mean, things like paybacks, LTVs, et cetera, I would say on a quarterly basis, we step back and say, are we calculating this the right way? Do we have the right items just in this calculation? Um, and what should go in or out? How will it change with new products, et cetera? Yeah. There's a saying that I like to go back to is beware of all green dashboards. I find sometimes <laughs> that teams tend to put the metrics that they're most comfortable with explaining to your point, you know, how do we define this? What goes into it? But sometimes when a metric is either trending in the wrong way or it's, you know, harder, takes more time to explain it and wrap your head uh, around it, it may kind of hit the back burner. It's a really good point. I mean, this is why I think like we have an automated system that sends out, there's no people putting together uh, decks so that we're all looking at the same thing and it's the truth, whether it's good or bad. And then, you know, we go from there. So having the right reporting uh, and frequency of reporting as well as delivery of that reporting, I think it, you know, makes a difference. Small things make a difference in these things. And maybe to drill into that, you do yeah. come from a deep data background, and I'm curious why you think the marriage between data and finances is so important. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is something I love talking about, as as you may know. I I honestly really think that you know, the finance teams of the future are going to be indistinguishable from like data analysts or data teams, and it's, it's simply because you know this pace of decision making has become essentially now. I will also caveat this by saying this is more applicable to startups really than more public companies. I think the larger you get, the more time you have to, you know, you can look at reports quarterly, monthly, you know, or weekly. But in a startup, you, you just honestly don't have that time. You know, you make a decision daily. So if you're making daily decisions on a monthly accounting close, cannot really weigh into that decision, right? It just takes too long to get the information you need. You know, it's month end, then it takes, with a great team, it takes five days to close. With not a, a great team, it takes 15 days yeah, to close. So I've you have there. financials at the end of the following month. That's not, you know, useful. So how do you get information before, not after the close of a month. The only way to do it is to ensure the seamless interaction between data and finance, uh, and which I'm really proud to say we have it public. And you can see, you know, down to a user level, revenue, gross profit, and our product managers, our operations team, our customer support team uses that information to make better decisions for their customers. And that marriage allows us to serve the users that are most valuable to the company best. I've struggled in the past with who owns what type of data. So for example, things that end up on the PL like gap revenue or costs may roll up to the FP&A team in terms of responsibilities, but then you kind of get in this middle ground if you have a sales ops team where they're managing things from Salesforce and anything that's an opportunity related. So how do you yeah. frame up data ownership at, at public? For one, one, we draw a very distinct line between production data uh, that goes out to customers, which lives entirely within the engineering team, right? That is what is used. Like we're, we're talking about like market data. There's, there's so many pieces. There's a massive amount of information in an investment platform like public, right? We are just dealing with a volume of data that perhaps, uh, you know, some B2B companies don't. So we draw a, a clean distinction between production and consumer-facing data and our data warehouse, which is really meant for optimization of our internal products and tools. And all of that optimization data lives really within the finance and data team. So we have a single data warehouse that pulls from every single one of our sources, whether it's marketing data. We have companies like Segment that helps us pull marketing data in whether it's our own production data or obviously our proprietary tables, et cetera, but also other external data, you know, from our customer service uh, tool, which is Intercom, et cetera. Bringing all of those pieces of data together is 
I, I think actually kind of the promised land for uh, such projects and the reason why we're able to be successful with it is is that honestly we started early when the company was only a year out at the time and we already started building out the warehouse. And so it evolved as the company evolved. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. how you have a data first mindset and it seems like you're very much like a a, a first order thinker and, and framework thinker do you have any frameworks that you you like to incorporate with your team when you're making decisions day to day well my favorite one is correlation is not causation i love that one. that's the one i use honestly the most because as you can imagine in the markets there's a lot of correlation and so we try to get to the root of the answer. Can we actually establish causality? And in some cases, we simply can't. And it's just important to know that. And this is, you know, maybe an antithetical one to ask to someone who's obsessed with data. But can you think of any times where you actually ignored something the data was telling you and went, went with maybe a gut feeling? Yeah, I mean, honestly... All the time when we launch a new product, right? In the fullness of time, like every, uh, you know, investment platform is likely to have a similar looking set of products, right? But the key thing is what do we launch when? Now, if you looked at all the data going into 2022, we were coming off like the hottest rally of yeah, crypto, there was GameStop, then there was crypto, right? Then there was NFTs and alternative assets. So all the data would have told us to launch like more speculative assets or more trading assets, right? Push into futures or commodities or some such thing. But it was also a time when the Fed raised interest rates faster than anyone would have predicted. And there's nothing that would have told you that it would have gone down the way it did. And so in reacting to that, the team got together and we decided to launch Treasuries. Um, and where public is today, you know, one of the only platforms in the country, the only platform really, where you can buy U.S. Treasuries with two clicks, right? And no amount of data would told us to do that. It was just looking at what the consumer was likely to need going into the next year, right? That has been one of our most successful product launches. And I'm no Ben Bernanke here, but treasuries is pretty much the opposite risk profile as something like crypto, which it seemed like the market was probably giving you data to say to push towards. Yes, exactly. Right. But you have to like you have to evolve to the changing nature of the market and looking at this as just the data don't doesn't always give you the answer. Really, the answer should always start from what does the customer need? Right. And often what does the customer need is something that's much more intuitive than it is a really hard database. Right. Like it's it's qualitative. It's it's based on really knowing who you're serving. And the customers wanted yield to combat the inflation that came shortly after those rising interest rates. Right. And we're pushing further into yield products because that you know has performed for us and so more to come without disclosing too much. It sounds like in that decision, the data was telling you one thing, but you're kind of weighing a long-term vision versus a short-term vision in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to bring it back to the customer, right? One of the things that public has taught me and does really well is a, is a true customer obsession at first thinking about how do we align incentives with the customer and what does the customer need in this time, right? And so if you triangulate on those two things, which is absolutely, what is our long-term vision to make the public markets work for all people? And what do the people need now, right? Um, those two things came together. And so I often say data is an optimization play, not you know, a product launch play. From zero to one, you need the right intuition and the right vision and the right like product roadmap. But from one to hundred, that's where, you know, the the daily optimization, the A-B testing, the integration of data uh, into product uh, is extremely key. So you need to know when not to use the data in addition to when to use the data. Some companies will chase what they think the data is telling them before they have product market fit for something. Oh, I'm, absolutely. I think that's extremely true. I mean, it's 
it tends to happen when you start with a product versus start with a customer, right? You're like, yeah. this sounds like a great idea and this must exist. And if it was priced this way, it would make a lot of money and it would, you know, it would be this like, but does the customer even need the product you're offering? Something that's very apparent just from talking to you for this short while is that even though you're a CFO, you understand the product pretty intimately. You understand the customer extremely well. And I'm wondering if that's a quality that you think separates a good CFO from a great CFO. What are the qualities that you think delineates the two? And do you think, you know, understanding the product at that level is something that separates the good from the great? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, CJ. Uh, I think I have the benefit of honestly having spent my entire career in fintech, which is a little bit different than others, right? Sure. And frankly, I think there are a lot of great CFOs who work at companies that don't serve them. I'm also lucky that public serves me, right? It is my primary investment platform. I use it every day and I you know, love the markets. I think that that may not always be the case, but I will say what is true and what I have found to be true, great CFOs, especially the mentors and the people who have been helpful to me along the way. Absolutely, they have an extremely deep understanding of the product and operations. And in Mm. fact, they often do more than just finance. You know, either they run the operations or they have an experience in product or some different part of the organization. They tend to come from at least having a stint outside of finance so they have a deeper understanding of the organization overall. I love that. I think getting out of your finance bubble is extremely important to know how other groups function and also to know the questions to ask of the department leaders kind of when you're in that finance chair finally. Yeah, absolutely. And to empathize, right? Again, like it's honestly easy to start with the spreadsheet. It feels a lot safer to sit behind your spreadsheet. Yes, absolutely, right? And like, it's definitely a hard skill to master and you have to be accurate in it. But you can easily look at these numbers and say, oh, well, if we change the price of the product, this would increase the margins by X percent. And so why don't we just do that? You know? Yeah. So I think empathy for actually selling the product is is key. Uh, and, and that comes from spending a little bit of time outside of the finance bubble, like you said. One of the things that a partner actually told me is the CFO actually has permission to sit and should have permission to sit in on any meeting they want within the company. Can you go deeper on that? That's really good. Yeah. In any company, the CFO should establish that they can sit in on pretty much any meeting in the company. And the reason for that is there is no like product decision or engineering decision or operations decision, which is outside the remit of the CFO's role, right? Because you cannot represent the company both in a financial model, as well as to investors uh, internally and externally accurately without really knowing the bones of it. And how do you get to know the bones of it? You need to know how the decisions are being made across the org. And so what I would you know, tell other CFOs is to actually do it. Like after a time, even when you're comfortable in this role, go sit in on that product meeting, like listen to uh, how prioritization is being done, listen to how the customer is being served, listen to how your customer support team um, is interacting with customers. Like it changes all the time. And so it's not just when you join, but do it all the time. And so I want to do that. I want to be more embedded into different departments in the org. How do I do that without looking like I'm the police? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I think it comes down to relationships, right? If you have relationships across the org where you're not, you know, the person to say no all the time and you know who you can sit with, who is not going to be intimidated by your title, that's the meeting that you should be in, right? But it's really important to know people across the org, up and down levels, talk to everyone you can, right? This role, as you know, CJ, has to come with humility because at the end of the day, you're representing uh, a business that others are you know, building and running and you know, you're working on ensuring accurate representation of a complex machine into a set of numbers, right? And so if taking that into the room helps, but certainly you want to make sure you're in a room where they're going to stop talking with the CFOs in the room. So it needs to be a meeting where people will continue to 
to do their job. And, and the way to do that, by the way, I want to be clear, is in all you only have the right to be listened only in these contexts. You don't get to weigh in and say, change that decision, right? Listen only. You can be part of many decisions across the org. That's amazing. It actually helps me a lot in my current role too. I'm a I'm a first time CFO. I just hit my one year cliff yesterday and I'm trying to balance the role is telling the truth with the numbers, even when it makes people look bad versus trying to get out into the org. And I kind of think about it as almost like a, a backup quarterback to the CEO in a lot of ways. I don't know if that's yeah. an accurate description, but I'm trying to always go through mental reps too. When a question gets thrown at the CEO as if, how, how would I answer that? Even if I know it's not my job to actually speak up and verbally say something. Yeah. And you had hit on that earlier about a good CFO or a great CFO should be able to answer basically any question about the org, even if you're not the yeah. one giving the answer. Yeah, absolutely. You should be able to pitch the company, you know, to the moon and back, right? Uh, or take questions on any single aspect. The thing I'll, I'll tell you, CJ, as you like think about embedding with yourself within the company or feel like you have to tell the truth. If you feel like there's a disconnect between what the model is saying or the numbers are saying and what the team is working on, take a good hard look at whether your model is right. Because there are so many different ways to think about the same problem. I can give you an example, right? You know, we were running a model at one point, which was based on like CACs, essentially. You take a marketing budget, you look at the number of users, and then you look at, uh, you know, how many users, and what is the cost of the user you're acquiring, right? It turns out that that was actually not the right way to think about how we were bringing users onto the platform. It was better to think about it in terms of their actions immediately after they joined. We needed to think about, you know, were they transferring assets? How much assets were they transferring? It was the cost of bringing on those assets, right? And so, are you sure you're using the right metric is a question I would ask any CFO who feels like they're out of sync with their org. I like how you kind of pointed out that sometimes you'll have a modeling problem or a budgeting yes. problem. And it's yes. it's not the org's fault that something's going wrong. It's that you and your model don't accurately reflect reality. Yeah. I mean, that may not always be the case. Yeah, right? yeah. But, but I think it's important to also remember that yeah, it's a partnership, right? And so I have found that going back to, is this the right equation for this or usually answers the question. As a CFO, sometimes I struggle with how much I should get over my skis in terms of commenting on org structure. Is that something that from day one, you feel comfortable saying because 70% of the costs are, are people that, that you kind of give an opinion on? Or how comfortable should a CFO be about org structure? This is a hard one. It really depends. One, I would say there's many ways to benchmark that. And I would do that, right? Like the market is your friend. There are lots of like CFO resource groups. So I think benchmarking various parts of your org and always thinking about it as ROI, right? Like how can you put an ROI to whatever you're talking about? Whether it's, you know, a pod that's working on a certain problem. What is the payback of the investment that we're making? How long will we make that money back? Thinking about everything in terms of payback, but just slicing it various different ways is something that has worked for me. <laughs> it's like at the end of the day, it's all about payback. Yeah, this, it is really the queen metric or king metric of startups. <laughs> I'm curious, what do you think are some of the biggest differences just to kind of bring the two topics together of being a CFO of this type of business model at public versus a CFO of maybe a traditional SaaS company? Are there different metrics you look at? Are there different frameworks you have to take to run the business day to day? I I think uh, the answer necessarily has to be yes, right? In a typical software company, your growth is sales driven, mm. right? You're, you have a sales org. And so when you have sales driven growth, your key stakeholder, in addition to the CEO, it's probably the CRO, the chief revenue officer, right? It works super closely with that team to know, are we getting the forecasting right? Like, are we even thinking about this the right way? Are we going after the right targets? What does conversion look like, et cetera, right? Um, and so the two key stakeholders in that equation become the CRO and the CEO. And 
a lot of the inputs really are based on people. So you need an extremely strong partnership up and down the sales org. If you now talk about our business model, which is a consumer business, what is most important is one, capturing all the data and looking at it consistently. Once you actually have all the data, there's much less like personnel input. Like I actually don't really need to talk to the marketing team to know, you know, how are we performing on, you know, on CACs, right? Like the data speaks for itself, which, which certainly uh, makes it easier in some ways, but in other ways it can change every day, right? Like consumers, you had, you need to focus not only on acquisition, but also retention and do that every day. So from that perspective, the things you're focused on are different because in addition to looking at you know, CAC, ARPU, payback, you're looking at retention churn across various you know, D1, D30, D90, and then one year, et cetera. That's an incredible answer. And those are so many different flavors of retention. Would you say retention is one of the top three metrics that you look at day-to-day at public? I look at it frequently, but I also say it's one of our strongest. And so that's one of the things that kind of sets us apart relative to other peers. But yeah, in addition to all these other metrics, I look at all of the metrics every day. Hard one. If you could only choose one cut of retention, which retention metric would you look at to best understand the business's health? Uh, D90. 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 So can you explain that one for me? Yeah, I think it's a good indicator of longer term um, retention, right? Lifetime for us is not measured in weeks or months, it's years. Because if you're serving your customer well, people don't switch your their investment platform all the time, right? Our implied lifetimes are in the double digits in years. But the best predictor of that tends to be the D90. So if you were a first-time CEO putting yourself in those shoes and you're looking to hire maybe your first CFO, what do you think the number one quality you would look for or interview for would be? Honestly, the most important thing is really the trust and partnership, which we kind of talked about up front. It is a little bit difficult to interview for that. It is it is a does it work type of situation. Uh, I mean, honestly, this is why I'm such a big proponent of in-person work. I'm in the office four days a week because I think humans are biological features. We like, you know, being around the people that we work with and and it really helps to build that trust and relationship. So I think the most important thing is a little bit hard to interview for. But outside of that, I think it is truly like, are you able to put numbers around things that don't obviously have numbers, right? Can you drive quantitative decision-making in situations which may feel like somewhat opaque otherwise, right? Because as we go along the way, particularly, you know, you have a limited amount of resources, which is your cash balance, and you're putting it towards a number of different projects. Now, the question always is, well, this project or that project, right? This product or that product, this marketing. And in many of those cases, it's really difficult to reduce something that hasn't launched, that may not have a market, that may be completely new. It's hard to reduce it down to a set of numbers, right? But if, if you have that skill, I think that is most the most valuable counterpoint to a CEO's vision. So it's taking something that's qualitative and making it quantitative in a way? Yeah, and being able to uh, go back and forth between the two and also recognize that the numbers you know, you may not be right. And so then the third one I would add is like scenario planning, which is key, which is what if the numbers that I just put on the table are completely wrong, then what happens, right? So playing out scenarios, that's the third skill. Let's dig into that and maybe just to frame it up, I'm wondering how you deal with situations where you are wrong, even if the decision was right at the time, um, and you put something on the table in front of either the board or the CEO, what's What's the path to presenting that and kind of rectifying it? I would say every forecast is wrong. Yeah. (laughs) There's never a perfect forecast. Now, the question is, is it directionally correct? Is it correct enough that you feel like you still made the right business decisions? And even if it's wrong on some things, does it, you know, work out a 
on average overall, like one product did worse, but the other one did better. But generally, you know, growth is trending in the right direction, et cetera, right? Uh, but every forecast is wrong, which is exactly why I think as a CFO in an environment with massive uncertainty, which we're still in, but seem to be coming out of, you need to present options. You need to say, this is the range of outcomes. And as long as we're above this, you know, we're in the clear, right? Yep. Uh, and so talking in absolutes is tricky and frankly, just inaccurate. And to get tactical and scenario planning, I love this stuff. How do you look at the different scenarios? Do you do like a worst case, base case, best case? What, what, how do you frame that up? In our, in our business, we have some macro exposure, right? Public is totally. an investment platform. Now we have honestly, products for every part of the cycle, which is part of the beauty uh, of our business model, right? In times where interest rates are high, our customers take yield products. They're more interested in treasuries. But in times where interest rates are low, people trade more. This is, you know, established. And so they tend to, you know, trade more stocks and maybe trade some crypto, et cetera. So the question becomes, what is coming up? Who knows? Who knows what 2024 holds? But We lay out usually scenarios based on where we think the markets will be and where we think interest rates will be. If interest rates are high, these are the businesses that perform well. If interest rates are low, these are the businesses that perform well. So three scenarios with a mixture of those things. So it's a little less um, low, medium, high, but it is more here are the key inputs and here's how they interact to generate certain outputs. And, you know, I'm coming from a traditional SaaS background, and a lot of times I'm forecasting more the execution risk of our sales team to be able to go out and sell things. You have so much macro exposure that you're also looking at, you know, the best case, worst case, base case for the economy as well. I imagine that's a whole nother wrench that it throws in your forecasting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know which is the harder wrench because in some ways, you know, no one controls the macro. But when you're dealing with people and frankly with consumer businesses, our funnel is, you know, best in class. We know this because we can test it and we have massive number of data points. It does it takes us a day to know whether something's going wrong in our marketing funnel. Whereas in B2B businesses, it can take you some time to know something's going wrong in your sales funnel, right? Yeah. It shows up like the delays take time to show up and you need to capture the data. So there's there's pros and cons in both models. In some ways consumers easier, but in in some ways it's harder too because of micro exposure. When you set out to model, are you yeah are you modeling in the impact of what you think the economy will be, which is incredibly hard to predict? And then how yeah. do you separate that from modeling how the business will execute? Because they're kind of two different buckets yeah. of risk that you're yeah. almost trying to put on one piece of paper and one operating plan. Yep. I think it is to just be very conservative and macro assumptions because nothing else is really justifiable, right? You cannot put a model out that says the market is going to go up 10, 15% in a year. That is like, nobody knows, right? So use conservative assumptions on macro, but then make it really clear how the business works beyond that, right? Mm -hmm. So, So having extreme clarity on how that affects the business model. And then again, like I said, presenting the range of outcomes um, just allows you to paint a clearer picture. I love that. Maybe transitioning a bit, just getting into your personal background and and how it helped you to get to where you are today. I was going through your LinkedIn profile and you have a really impressive background when it comes to giving back and, and mentorship. And I'm wondering if mentorship played a big role in into getting you to where you are today. Oh, absolutely, CJ. I mean, I started out an engineer, right, to end up in finance as someone, my whole family is engineers. The reason why I'm at public and doing the job I'm doing is is simply because my family, super smart engineers, lost a ton of money in the stock market to a road broker who put them in a series of bad trades, which I know now were extraordinarily risky, but Honestly, no one knew at the time. And that's when I realized like smart people don't know anything about money. You know, I mean, my mom worked on literally building like defense helicopters. She has a master's degree in electronics. A and smart she, woman. And, yes. And did not know enough not to trust the trader. Right. 
And that set me down a path of wanting to learn more about finance, but I came from a world where I really didn't know much about it. Really, most of the people I knew were uh, scientists or engineers. And so I had a number of mentors along the way. You know, Devin Rich, who hired me into RBC, and Rick Correa, who's now the CFO of Moneyline, still the CFO of Moneyline, who hired me into Moneyline. People who sent me along the way um, to you know, really excel in a, in a completely new field. So do you feel like they kind of took a shot on you? Oh, absolutely. I think it is always helpful to have some quantitative background. So I think they actually liked the engineering background because like you said, it allows you to put frameworks around decisions and system-based thinking is helpful to building companies. So they absolutely did because in both of those cases, I was starting something new, right? It was the first time I was entering investment banking when Devin hired me. It was the first time I was entering startups when Rick hired me. Uh, and they absolutely took a shot on me. And it feels good when somebody sees something in yourself that you may not have seen on your own. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is one of our kind of manager values as well, right? Like a good manager sees potential in you before you do. I like that. And takes a bet on an outcome. And this is what I love doing for the people on my team, which is why many people on my team get promoted over time. And you know, we have a super high retention rate on our team, which I'm very proud of. It's because, you know, I think Everyone is in a stretch role, and I think that's exactly how it should be for ambitious young people who want to do more than the paper resume says. What are some of the indicators that you see in people when you think that they're ready to take on more? Is it something where they're coming up to you and asking for more, or you see the fire in their eyes? How do you know that this is a person that I want to take a shot on? Is it maybe you're seeing a little bit of yourself in them? I very blessed to have a team that's way smarter than me. And this is actually one of the advice that a mentor gave me, which is hire people that scare you. And I think it's such a great piece of advice because truly when you have people on your team who you feel like you don't really know the limits of their abilities, that's the kind of person you want to hire. You know, it's such a joy to have so many people on my team who are like that. But to answer your question, how do you know when people are ready for more? It's this, right? Like they don't even know truly where the job ends. They take so much ownership of their work. They're coming, you know, they're doing this. They're coming up with new ideas. They've solved something along the way. They've talked to like two people and they're like, okay, so I saw this and then I talked to a few people and then I worked on it. And here, here are three options. So what do you think we should do? Right. And they don't even wait for me to say, okay, can you chase this down? Right. They see something and they go after it and they don't feel like it's not their job to find an answer. I'm going to say a statement and I want you to react to it. Hire someone who wants to take your job. Absolutely. I mean, the answer to that is absolutely yes. I hire extremely ambitious people and you know, I was that person, right? It's, right, right. In my mind, that's an obvious answer, right? Because you want people who want to do more and take on more and do it naturally. That's awesome. What's your approach to giving advice to people? Honestly, I think it is not to give too much advice. People usually cannot really take more than one really meaningful input, right? Maybe one, maybe two, but frankly, like when you've spent a few years in the industry and you, especially in your role, CJ, you see so many people, you, you get so many different inputs that honestly, you probably have a wide variety of inputs to give someone who's starting out. So it's almost what is most relevant now versus what is all relevant, right? So I try to give little advice maybe one or two things with the hope that they, you know, they keep it. And I think that does work because they tend to come back <laughs> for more. Uh, I think that's the, that's the sign. I, I was an amateur boxer when I was younger. I wasn't the best in the world, but I could, I can still take a punch. And my coach used to say that in between rounds, I'll give you one thing, maybe two, but if I give you six or seven, it's pretty much the same thing as me giving you nothing. Right. Exactly. I mean, sport I have a lot of respect for. I think in life, maybe people can take more than one thing. At that point, I, I completely agree. But you know, I think that is advice that applies everywhere. Maybe even 
now for me, right? When I reach out to my mentors, it's highly topical. And candidly, you know, they stay on topic as well because they know that if I'm dealing with a situation, that's the thing that's top of my mind. They can tell me two other things, but I wouldn't even absorb it. I know you have a family and a baby. How do you possibly balance that with CFO life? Um, I have a lot of discussions with my wife because she's a woman in tech. She's had one kid now and we have another one on the way. And it was a lot easier for me to go and tell my boss, hey, I'm having a second kid. You know, I'm probably going to take a couple of weeks off. She's actually been really nervous about telling her boss. And she's trying to plan it around actually her promotion cycle because she's actually a little bit worried about telling them that she's going to take time off. As a woman in tech, like how do you balance the responsibility of being a mother with a young child and then also, you know, it's a lot of hours to work too. I think the concept of balance is dead. Like I, uh, I actually don't think it ever existed. Like I think balance implies that the two things are at odds, right? Like one okay. versus the other. Yeah. Whereas in reality, my life is like a jigsaw puzzle of home and work. Gotcha. And both kind of fit into each other, right? So, so can you make the two pieces fit is the question that we should all be asking ourselves. And the way for me, those two pieces fit is that I'm always home for dinner time with my baby. I often put her to bed or maybe my husband is, but we do dinner together and we, and then I go back to work, right? Like sometimes I like, I jump back online and some days that's just not possible. I have a client dinner or whatever, and I'm not able to make it. And so sometimes in that jigsaw puzzle, work fills it 80% and home is 20%. But sometimes I need to take the dog to the vet and, you know, baby to the doctor, which happened last week and the home takes a larger. So I like to think of it as a jigsaw puzzle. And as long as it's like roughly even, which for me it is because you know, I think public's a great employer, uh, you're in a good place. And I think like if you love what you do, they are not at odds, which is exactly what yeah. you said. So then yeah. you just spend time on the things that is most urgent at that point, and then you take care of the rest. All right. To transition a bit here, I wanted to move into what we call our long ass lightning round, where I'm going to hit you with a couple of uh, quick questions. So the first All one right. I wanted to ask you was people tend to think of CFOs as quite polished and perfect, but um. I'm curious, can you give us an example of something you may have screwed up in the past on the job? Oh my God, so many. (laughs) I can think of a time that this was in a previous job, not the current one. I, in an M&A transaction, there are project names, you carefully manage data rooms, you keep like processes separate, et cetera. We were down to like, you know, two final parties and I sent basically the materials from one party to the other. And so it was. It became clear to the other party who the other bidder was. But luckily, in that instance, it fired them up even more to like beat them. And so it ended up, you know, resulting in still a positive outcome for the business. But that's a huge no-no. It's so funny you said that. So we interviewed Michael from Brex. CFO there. And he said the exact same thing. He, as an investment (laughs) banker, he accidentally uploaded like a bid summary to the wrong data room. So you're not the only one. Oh, well, good to know. I'm in in famous company. (laughs) That's funny, but it actually stoked the fire of the other party to to bid more. But in this case, it actually, it looked like a a deal move, which I'll take credit for. Yeah, you look like a genius. It was, it was all (laughs) a part of a long con. (laughs) That's exactly right. Okay. So if you could tell your younger self something, knowing what you know today, what would you tell her? Oh man. Uh, honestly, like, I, I think as a kid, I was like, Oh, I don't want to do sales. You know, I want to write the code or, you know, I want to build the model. I don't want to do sales. Like every job is selling. So learn to sell. That's what I would tell myself. <laughs> yeah. The older I get, I look at like a partner at a big four accounting firm, their number one job is sales. Partner at a law firm, number one job is sales. Yeah. CFO, yeah. you're selling the company for to yeah. get talent and also selling the company yeah. to raise money, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Can you walk me through what you're using for your finance stack today? Yeah, for sure. So we use NetSuite 
for uh, ERP. Shout out NetSuite. We love NetSuite. Yeah, I mean, honestly, NetSuite works great for us. We actually still do all of our forecasting in Excel, but we're testing out integrations between our data warehouse as well as Excel. So we use high touch basically to bring data from Looker into Excel. And we use Brex. You mentioned Michael. Nice. Brex is a partner. We use Friend Brex of the for pod. cards. Yes. Uh, AP system, we use Mineral Tree. And I think, you know, pretty much completes it. What was the most recent tool you bought? You know, we're testing out another tool for automating data feeds into our model. The FBNA tool we've tested so many. So the most recent project was actually just a, a dry run for a small tool called Aleph. Yep. But if you can solve the right FBNA tool for us, you know, I'll give you a cookie. It's been it's been hard not to crack. You're gonna have. A lot of uh, inbound inquiries from FPA <laughs> vendors after this. I promise you that. <laughs> We've tested almost every single one. And Frankie, I think we're a little too, uh, we love our modeling too much. So we still live in Excel, but maybe that'll change. And last one here. What's the craziest thing you've ever had someone try to expense? <laughs> That's funny. Again, not this job. Unnamed. I'm not going to name the job, but That's it fine. is. Someone who bought a gift for that partner and tried to pawn it up as a client gift. Uh, so Do you know what was, the gift uh, was? Was it anything interesting? It was a, yeah, it was a, it was a it was a little bag. It was a cool little bag. Uh, it was green. I don't remember which bag it was. I remember seeing the gift. It was a green little bag. It did not succeed, by the way. Don't didn't get that. through. Did not get through. So. Okay, that's a good one. My friend who's a CFO who listens to this podcast texted me because we did this segment last time. And he said that <laughs> he said someone tried to expense a nine piece jazz band that played at his Christmas party because one exec attended the party. Oh, my God. Okay, that's that's a good one. That one has me beat. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Shruti. Appreciate all the perspective and experience. Yeah, thank you for having me. I love talking about public and I love talking about this stuff. Run the Numbers is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen, Econ 102, and more. If you liked the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. Do it.